This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on diverticular disease. Kieran Walsh is my name and clinical director at BMJ. Diverticular disease is common. It affects approximately 50% of the population at the age of 50 years, and it is associated with a range of complications, including fistula, abscess, perforation, and strictures. So it is important that we get the treatment of this condition right. To tell us how to do this, we have on the line Mr. Mohammed Taha, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Colorectal Surgery at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. And importantly, Mohammed is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Mohammed, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is diverticular disease? Diverticular disease, as you said, is a very common condition, mainly affecting the large bile or the colon. It is a benign condition. What that means is it is not a cancer. However, it can coexist with cancer. By and large, when we refer to diverticular disease, we are talking about the diverticular disease affecting the colon, although it can affect other areas of the intestinal tract, such as small bowel. What really happens in diverticular disease is for whatever reason, the bowel wall gets thinner, that is the colonic wall, at certain areas, and they form outpouchings or little pockets, uh, which is why we call them diverticular disease, because these are diverticular. Now, this is a common condition which mostly affects the left side of the large bowel, particularly in the Western population, and it mainly affects areas called the sigmoid colon and the descending colon. But we tend to see more right-sided diverticular disease in Asian population, and there may be some particular reasons for that in the way of uh, higher meat consumption in those populations, particularly in the more recent times. But in reality, diverticular disease can affect any part of the colon in either of these populations. In fact, in some cases, diverticular disease is so extensive that it can affect the entire length of the colon, what we refer to as pancolonic diverticulosis. Okay, thank you. And how do you make the diagnosis of diverticular disease? When we talk about diagnosing diverticular disease, there are two important aspects one has to consider. First and foremost is to find out if somebody has got diverticulum or diverticulae in their colon. So that is what is called an anatomical diagnosis. Now, secondly, and most importantly, uh, when we talk about diagnosis, what we are referring to is to find out the consequence of having such a diverticulum, that is the acute illness because of having diverticular. The diverticular disease term is a misnomer because just having diverticulum doesn't necessarily mean it's a disease. It can be what is assumed as a normal finding in elderly age group. The disease itself is when we have symptoms or complications associated with the diverticulum. So the the latter part, which I was discussing, that is finding the consequences of having diverticulum will require additional sets of tests. So if I come back to the first one, that is to diagnose diverticulum, the mainstay of 
diagnostic test is what is called a colonoscopy. Now, this is the gold standard. What colonoscopy would allow is direct inspection of the inside of the colon, that is the mucosal lining. And it will demonstrate whether somebody has got diverticulum or not. In addition, it will give you a lot more findings, that is to the number of diverticulum, how big or small they are, whether there are any associated complications or changes in the bowel wall itself in relation to these diverticulum. But more importantly, they will also allow you to find out if there are other coexisting concurrent pathologies. In some instances, it could be cancer. The second commonly used modality for diagnosing this condition is a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, which is widely available nowadays and is often used to diagnose the, the latter part, which I mentioned, that is to find the consequences or complexities of the diverticular disease. The non-invasive test or less invasive test compared to colonoscopy, which is an alternative to colonoscopy, is a CT colonoscopy or a virtual colonoscopy. Now, this will give very similar views to that of a traditional colonoscopy, but as I said, is a less invasive or non-invasive procedure. So these are the three main investigations that are used to diagnose diverticular disease. So if there are complications, such as an acute diverticulitis with infection or inflammation, obviously we have to do a battery of tests to diagnose the severity, and that includes series of blood tests. Okay, thank you. And what blood tests specifically would, would be needed usually? So if somebody is coming with acute uh, picture, such as um, left abdominal, lower abdominal pain, or if they have got suggestion of acute infection, uh, usually we do a full blood count, um, and that includes uh, a white cell count. Uh, in addition, we will do inflammatory markers such as C-reactive proteins. We also want to make sure that the patient's um, biochemistry, that is electrolytes, are normal, so we do sodium potassium levels and we also do uh, other uh, liver biochemistry. All of this may become important not only to diagnose the condition and the severity, but also in anticipation of what treatments we might be offering for these patients. Okay, thank you. And are there any recent advances in the assessment of patients with diverticular disease? We used to use what is called barium enema as the mainstay diagnostic imaging test. I have to say that in the last decade I've practiced as a consultant, I have not used a single barium enema. What we now use uh, mainly is either a CT colonoscopy, which is the virtual colonoscopy I talked about earlier, or most commonly we go direct to an endoscopy that is colonoscopy test. However, barium enema may still be very relevant in developing countries where there may not be such ready access for CT scans. When it comes to acute presentation, clearly we would need other tests, which I mentioned before. The new imaging modalities that are available, such as MRI scans, can be used, but are not commonly used for simple diagnosis of diverticular disease. On rare occasions, we tend to go down the route of a diagnostic laparoscopy in the context of diverticular disease, but this is more not to diagnose the condition itself, but to assess some of the complications with which the patients may present uh, to us. So diagnostic laparoscopy, as you would know, is a keyhole examination of the inside of the abdomen. 
and it requires a general anesthetic and hence an invasive procedure. Okay, thank you. And, and last question on diagnosis. I wonder what are the common pitfalls in making the diagnosis of diverticular disease? Now, diagnosing diverticular disease is um, relatively straightforward. What I mean by that is, you know, finding out if someone has a diverticular in their large bowel. Now, the real difficulty comes when the patients present with acute symptoms associated with this diverticular. The majority of them may present with abdominal pain, which is centered around the lower abdomen. So they can present either to the primary uh, care service in the UK to the general practitioner, or they could come straight to the hospital settings. Now, there is a common misconception that every presentation of this could be due to acute diverticulitis, that is inflammation plus or minus infection. And there is also a tendency to start antibiotic therapy immediately. But the reality is in the majority of the cases, these left iliac fossa abdominal pain presentation is not necessarily due to infection and a large proportion does not require antibiotics. There is no definitive test which can simply differentiate between the two, that is a painful diverticular disease from acute diverticulitis and also to tell you who needs antibiotic therapy. Although some of those blood tests which I mentioned before, we rely on them to find out if there is ongoing infection or inflammation. So we tend to do the full blood count, inflammatory markers and electrolytes and renal function tests in those patients. Now the second area where what I would call a pitfall when dealing with diverticular disease patients is not necessarily directly related to diverticular disease, but it is to ensuring that there are no other major coexisting pathologies. And I referred briefly earlier to coexisting colorectal cancer. In this age group, one has to be open-minded and have to ensure that no cancer coexists with diverticular disease. These are the two main common pitfalls uh, one, when one deals with diverticular disease. Okay, great, thank you, that's very clear. Let's move on to management. What is the mainstay of management? Well, the vast majority of the people who have diverticular disease do not have any symptoms whatsoever. So they are the asymptomatic patient group. And they do not necessarily require any active treatment for having this diverticular. However, prevention is the key in this uh, disease. So most commonly one would see clinicians advocating dietary management, particularly high fiber diet. That could be dietary supplements or complete modification of your normal diet. Secondly, an important aspect of this uh, advice would be improving hydration. So what you're doing is you're increasing the bulk of the stools, but at the same time, making sure that patients are not getting too constipated and hence the bowel movements are sufficiently easy and regular. Uh, there may be some advice given to patients regarding their bowel habits, uh, but that is in the larger context of having a better uh, bowel pattern and bowel movement. In some cases, uh, especially people who have a tendency to have constipation, they may require mild laxatives. These are oral laxatives, either in the tablet form or liquid form.
Now, the next group of patients, as we talked about before, are the patients with symptoms. So if the patient presents with painful diverticular disease, a majority of which do not have infection, simple analgesics, and also the above management of dietary management would suffice. If patients present with acute diverticulitis, then there may be a need for antibiotic therapy, either as an outpatient therapy or as an inpatient therapy. And if there are complications associated with the diverticular disease, it would require appropriate intervention. For bleeding diverticulitis, you, you need to control the bleeding. Um, and for acute diverticulitis with abscess, you may need to drain the abscess, or in rare cases, you might have to intervene by means of a major operation. Okay, thank you. And you, you mentioned laxatives may sometimes be necessary for constipation. Are there any laxatives you would particularly use or any you would particularly advise to be avoided? By and large, the majority of the practitioners would rely on laxatives, simple laxatives like Senna tablet, um, although they are the prokinetic type of uh, laxatives, which increases the bowel movement or bowel propulsion, uh, in uncomplicated cases, they are acceptable. Um, people tend to use, in this country, in the UK, we tend to use a Movicol, uh, which comes in a powder form, which is um, each sachet would be diluted in, in a, a large volume of uh, liquid, and the patients are asked to drink those liquids. So it not only uh, offers them the laxatives, but also is a means of improving their hydration. Uh, these are the common laxatives that are used in my practice. Okay, thank you. And, and in terms of antibiotics, what would the typical antibiotic regimen be, or, or, or does it depend? It depends very much on the condition with which they're present. Um, as I said, there is a a significantly uh, large overuse of antibiotic therapy in painful diverticular disease, which is unnecessary. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have a very specific test to differentiate the two. In acute diverticulitis, if they are not very severe, that means there is no associated complication such as an abscess. Simple, you start off with a simple antibiotic regime. And the commonest antibiotic which we use in, in the UK is uh, what is called augmentin, which is chlorolinic acid. And usually the antibiotic dosage would be for a period of seven to 10 days, depending on the progress. Now, an alternative could be uh, ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole for similar periods of time. If there are severe infection, if there is an abscess to deal with and the patient is systemically unwell, uh, clearly you would choose other antibiotics and some of them include keftriaxone and metronidazole in combination or uh, piperacillin and tazobactam. It depends very much on the condition of the patient and the severity of the illness and that would be guided by the different investigations you do. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to pitfalls in management. What are the common pitfalls in management, would you say? I've already alluded to this issue of uh, painful diverticular disease versus acute diverticulitis. And the consequence of that is an overuse of antibiotics. And I think uh, people who manage diverticular disease in the community 
plus those who manage in the secondary care has to be very, very cautious about this. Overuse of antibiotic does not address the problem in itself. However, it could result in antibiotic resistance. Now, other areas where um, we could go down the wrong path is um, not sufficiently addressing the coexisting pathology. Often what you find is patients present to you as an emergency with left, abdo left lower abdominal pain and they may get a CT scan, and the CT scan would report acute diverticulitis, but may also query possibility of a cancer underlying or coexisting cancer. It is very important that despite the patient settling down to whatever treatment regime you're offered, that you need to follow that up. And these patients would require a colonoscopy to have a look from the inside plus or minus appropriate biopsies to ensure that they do not have an underlying cancer. Because sometimes it is very difficult to clearly differentiate between a cancer presentation and a diverticulitis presentation. Next, uh, one of the other pitfalls is coexisting uh, inflammatory bowel disease, such as uh, Crohn's colitis or ulcerative colitis. And again, this would require appropriate colonoscopy at the appropriate time to ensure we get to the bottom of this and make sure there is no major pathology that we are missing. Other than this, uh, management of diverticulitis is pretty straightforward. Okay, thank you. Last question, which is a question about questions really. What other things have, have we missed? Are there any other common questions you're asked about diverticular disease? Well, the commonest question I get asked uh, when patients are told that they have got diverticular disease is, doctor, is this a cancer? I've, I've, I've mentioned that at the beginning. Diverticular disease is a benign condition. It is not a cancer, and there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that long-standing diverticular disease would transform into bowel cancer. What is important is diverticular disease and cancer can coexist in a small proportion of patients. So it is important that we keep an open mind, identify that. Now, the second commonest theme that comes from patients and sometimes from my primary care colleagues is what exactly is the cause of diverticular disease? So the time old theory is that low fiber diet, particularly in the Western population, is one of the main environmental reasons for diverticular disease. And there is a, a fair, fairly large evidence to suggest that. And hence, the primary prevention focuses on improving the dietary habit, particularly the fiber content of the diet. But there is an increasing uh, thought of genetics playing a role in diverticular disease etiology. Um, we are far from any conclusion on that, but this is an emerging area of research where we are starting to see coexisting pathologies with diverticular disease, both having common genetic background and I'm very, very interested in the directions of travel in this area. And thirdly, the commonest question is who requires antibiotics, particularly when patients present to the uh, community a clinician with recurrent abdominal pain. Some of the new developments that is happening in the treatment of diverticular disease is focusing on this particular area. For example, we uh, prescribe sometimes uh, an anti-inflammatory drug like mesalazine for a longer duration 
trying to address the inflammatory component of this painful diverticular disease. There is a thought about using antibiotics like rufaximin on a longer time. And then there is also a body who prescribes probiotics as a therapy in the community or otherwise to treating, antibio uh, to treating diverticular disease, the symptomatic uh, type. So these, the, these are the common questions I get asked about. Okay, thank you very much, Mohammed. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.